your Bible to Matthew 24. Continuing this series, looking at Jesus teaching on the Mount of Olives. And you'll remember the book of Matthew has as its theme the idea that Jesus is the King. And so we've traced that through the book of Matthew kind of as a quick overview. We've seen that by and large, the Jewish people rejected Jesus as their Messiah. That comes most pointedly in the leaders, the religious leaders in Jerusalem. And so we saw the last couple of chapters leading up to this, chapters 21, 22, 23, we saw Jesus' confrontation with the leaders when he comes into Jerusalem. There's kind of this back and forth that happens. And then that finishes with Jesus giving these seven woes on the scribes and Pharisees, followed by his lament over Jerusalem because they have not recognized their Messiah. And then in chapter 24, we have this teaching that he gives to the disciples about what's going to happen. And so this is sometimes referred to as the Olivet Discourse. And before we kind of jump into even reviewing a little more, let me just show you a few pictures this morning so that you can understand what's going on where. Now, this is modern Jerusalem. So what you have in the center here, you can see the big rectangular area. That is the Temple Mount. The building that's there is not the temple. That's the Mosque of Omar, Al-Aqsa Mosque. And uh, that's because that's Muslim-controlled territory right now. The city of Jerusalem is divided up into different sections and kind of divided amongst different people groups. But that's where, about where, the temple would have sat. And if you look, you're, you're looking in this picture from the northeast looking southwest. So this area is the temple area and the rest of the city kind of stretches out to your right and up as you're looking at that picture, the older city of Jerusalem that was present in Jesus' day. But if you look at this wall, you can see kind of the sharp um, drop off there. That valley down there is the Kidron Valley. And so the Kidron River runs down at the bottom of it. And just off of the picture, which you can't see, is where it comes right back up on the other side is the Mount of Olives. So if we were to look from the Mount of Olives, and I, this is kind of a fuzzy picture, but it's about the best I could find. This is taken from the Mount of Olives, looking across the Kidron Valley to the Temple Mount area. Now, just to give you a picture, you can see if Jesus and his disciples were here on the Mount of Olives, where the temple would have sat is very visible. In fact, um, the temple would have been another 35 or 40 feet higher than the top of the dome that you see there, the Dome of the Rock. Okay, so that's where Jesus and his disciples are as they're having this conversation. And as Jesus is talking about the temple and uh, Jerusalem and what is about to happen. So today we're going to be in chapter 24, verses 21 through 28. But let me just kind of skim through what we've seen so far. At the beginning of the chapter, we saw Jesus leaving the temple. So he leaves that temple area, he comes out across the Kidron Valley and up to the Mount of Olives. And the disciples ask him their two questions. <clears throat> when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age. Not the end of the world, but the end of the age. Okay? And Jesus' answer goes into great detail about the things that they will see. Wars and rumors of wars. There will be tribulation for God's people and martyrdom. 
And the good news of the kingdom will go throughout the whole world, Jesus says. And we realize that means the whole known world, the Roman Empire, and the rest of the New Testament bears out that that actually was accomplished. That becomes very clear in the pages of the New Testament. And then, more recently, we saw the abomination of desolation. One of those, you know, terms that you, we don't use at all, except when we're talking about end time stuff, it seems. But we saw that what Matthew calls the abomination of desolation, Luke calls Jerusalem surrounded by armies. And so that helps us to understand exactly what it is that Jesus was talking about. And he says that all of these things will happen to this generation that he's speaking to. And he gives the Christians the warning. When you see the abomination of desolation, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, flee to the mountains. It's time to run. It's time to get out of Jerusalem. And that's exactly what they do. They flee mainly to the city of Pella. And so today, as we jump in in verse 21, we're continuing to talk about the great tribulation. And it's the time right before the Roman invasion leading up to AD 70, the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. So let's jump in in verse 21, and we'll kind of dig into the text. And, and the way I want to do this this morning, I'm going to just comment on the text verse by verse. Then I want to just kind of retell a little bit more of the story of the siege of Jerusalem. I've already told you some. I want to tell you a little bit more. And then I'll finish by just commenting on some things that we see about God's character from what we see in the text today. All right, verse 21. For then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. So last week, we kind of commented that the great tribulation is past. Most of the end time literature that you'll find today is looking forward to the great tribulation. According to what Jesus says, the great tribulation is past. It's done. And there are lots of end times teachers that will tell you it's something that's going to happen in the future. But again, Jesus is talking about something that will happen to this generation. Verse 34, he says, truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. So if you've missed last week or previous weeks, we've talked a little bit more about that. I just encourage you to go back and catch up on those. But the question that comes up in this verse that we just read is, was the suffering in Jerusalem and Judea in the years leading up to AD 70 really a time of great tribulation such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. Does it really fit that description? I want to answer that in two ways. The first is to say, it was really bad. And I'll tell you a little bit about that. And the second is to say, we have to understand the language Jesus is using. Okay? So first of all, it was really bad. And here's, I'll just give you a few things. The Roman historian Tacitus estimated that there were 600,000 people living in Jerusalem at this time. But Josephus says 1.1 million Jews were killed. So some people think Josephus was exaggerating or inaccurate, but he actually knows his stuff. He was the governor for a while, and um, he's a historian, and so he's doing his best to be accurate. As the Roman army made their way south through Israel, 
a lot of the people throughout the countryside fled. And where would you go for safety? Go to the big city that's got the big walls around it. So the, a lot of people flee into Jerusalem. Not only that, but when the final siege begins, it's the Passover time. When people from all over are coming to Jerusalem. So the population of Jerusalem that normally was sitting at 600,000 is greatly swollen at this time. D.A. Carson writes that never has so high a percentage of a great city's population been so thoroughly and painfully exterminated and enslaved as during the fall of Jerusalem. Let me give you three things Josephus says in his book, The Jewish Wars, describing this. Number one, he says, whereas the war the Jews made with the Romans has been the greatest of all those, not only that have been in our times, but in a manner of those that were ever heard of. Saying the war was fantastic on a great scale. Second, he says, the misfortunes of all men from the beginning of the world, if they be compared to these of the Jews, are not considerable as they were. And third, neither did any other city ever suffer such miseries from the beginning of the world. So that was Josephus's assessment. And remember, Josephus is not a Christian. He's a Jew. He's not trying to support what Jesus said. He's just trying to tell the history. So it was really bad. And then secondly, we need to understand what kind of language Jesus is using when he says this. He's using standard scriptural language that a prophet would use, and it's hyperbole. So let me, it, it, we saw before how much of this comes from the book of Daniel. And if you were to go to Daniel, you would see the exact same kind of language. But let me just show you two additional places. Exodus chapter 11. This is leading up to the final plague in Egypt. There shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been, nor ever will be again. You know, how do you put that together with what Jesus says? Which one was worse? You know, it's the language of a prophet talking about how awful things will be. Ezekiel 5. I want you to see this one. So hold your place in Matthew 24 and turn over to Ezekiel 5 with me for just a minute. Ezekiel 5. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel. Ezekiel 5. Give you a second to turn there. Now remember we've said that Jesus is living in what we call the second temple period. It was the second temple that was built on that site. Why is it the second temple? Because the first one had been destroyed. Ezekiel is in the first temple period. Actually, you're going to see a lot of similarities here. If you have headings in your Bible, look at chapter four. Mine says the siege of Jerusalem symbolized. Ezekiel is, a, is describing here what's about to happen in his day because Jerusalem is going to be besieged and destroyed, and the temple torn down, and all of that, because of Israel's sin. So chapter 5, then, uh, the, the first couple of verses, God tells Ezekiel to cut off his hair and his beard, take all that hair, and divide it into three parts, and do different things with it, put it in this place, and burn this, and you're, you're symbolizing the destruction that's about to come. Pick it up with me in verse 5. Thus says the Lord God, this is Jerusalem, 
I have set her in the center of the nations with countries all around her. She has rebelled against my rules by doing wickedness more than the nations and against my statutes more than the countries all around her. For they have rejected my rules and have not walked in my statutes. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, because you are more turbulent than the nations that are all around you and have not walked in my statutes or obeyed my rules and have not even acted according to the rules of the nations that are all around you. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, behold, I, even I, am against you, and I will execute judgments in your midst in the sight of all of the nations. And because of all your abominations, I will do with you what I have never yet done, and the like of which I will never do again. Therefore, fathers shall eat their sons in your midst, sons shall eat their fathers, and I will execute judgments on you. And any of you who survive, I will scatter to all the winds. Therefore, as I live, declares the Lord God, surely because you have defiled my sanctuary with all your detestable things and with all your abominations, therefore I will withdraw. My eye will not spare and I will have no pity. A third part of you shall die of pestilence and be consumed with famine in your midst. A third part shall fall by the sword all around you. And a third part I will scatter to all the winds and will unsheathe the sword after them. That language sounds exactly like what Jesus is describing in his day, but Ezekiel is talking about the destruction that's going to happen back in his day with the first temple. Did you notice what verse 9 said? Because of all your abominations, I will do with you what I have never yet done and the like of which I will never do again. That's that same prophetic language of hyperbole to kind of demonstrate just how awful things will be. So that's the kind of language Jesus is using in Matthew 24. Come back with me to Matthew 24, and we'll look now at verse 22. It says, and if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved, but for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. So the elect are God's chosen people. That's the church, that's the Christians. And this is actually talking about their physical salvation, not spiritual salvation, physical salvation from the judgment that's coming. Were the Christians saved from that judgment? Yes, they were, because Jesus warned them. So when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, time to get out. And that's what they did. And so they didn't face that judgment. So that's what this verse is kind of hinting at. Look then at verses 23 through 26. Then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders, so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. So if they say to you, look, he is in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, look, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. Now, when we looked at verses 1 through 14, we saw false messiahs and false prophets. So I'm not going to spend a lot of time on that here again. But Jesus mentions them again, probably because there will be more of them as things get worse, as things come to a head in Jerusalem, as AD 70 gets closer. And Josephus writes specifically about men during this time who deceived the people and went out into the wilderness ahead of them, promising some sign of God's deliverance. At one point, when Paul was in Jerusalem, the Roman tribune says to him, 
This is Acts 21, 38. It says, are you not the Egyptian then who recently stirred up a revolt and led 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? So the Roman Tribune was trying to figure out because Paul is preaching what he's preaching. He said, are you, aren't you the Egyptian that, that led 4,000 people out into the wilderness. So you have evidence right there in the New Testament that this is happening. You have people going out into the wilderness and calling people after them. And so 4,000 of, you might read the word, the Sicarii, the, the assassins, go out into the wilderness with this guy from Egypt. That kind of thing was going on in the days of the New Testament. Verse 27 then. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Now, oftentimes in Scripture, lightning signals God's presence. Think about God's appearance on Mount Sinai when the Israelites left Egypt. This is Exodus 20, verses 18 and 19. Now, when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled. And they stood far off and said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Now, God was not visible, but lightning was one of the ways that his presence was manifested on the mountain and the people recognized it. So here in Matthew 24, Jesus references the coming of the Son of Man. Now, we're going to talk more about that next week. But for now, let me just say this. Jesus is using language from the prophet Daniel. And he's talking about himself. Okay? He's talking about his coming into his kingdom. His being enthroned as king. And the evidence of that enthronement will be that he executes justice from the throne. After the resurrection... Jesus ascends to the Father, and he's seated at the Father's right hand. He takes the throne, and then, after this final period of grace and warning, his judgment will fall on the Jews in A.D. 70. And that evidence of his enthronement, that that judgment falls, will be, if you are in Jerusalem or Judea, like lightning that lights up the whole sky. You won't be able to miss it. You've been in that kind of lightning storm where everything is dark, but you have the kind of lightning that just explodes and lights up everything. That's what Jesus is saying. If you're in Jerusalem and Judea, the place that he's talking about this judgment falling, the coming of the Son of Man will be like that. You won't be able to miss it. It's going to be unmistakable, inescapable. Just like at Mount Sinai, God was there, but he wasn't visible. In the same way, at the coming of the Son of Man, Jesus won't be physically visible, but his presence in judgment will be inescapable and unmistakable. Now, one of the things that Luke records Jesus saying on the way to the cross, he says to the women that are accompanying him along the way to the crucifixion, daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, fall on us and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, 
what will happen when it is dry. What is Jesus saying? Well, Jesus is telling them that they should weep for themselves and for their children. In other words, this generation. Those who never had children will be considered blessed because this time of tribulation is going to be so great and parents are going to watch their children suffer. Right now, Jesus says, as they're crucifying me, the wood is green. There's still a little bit of time until the wood is dried out and ready. But within this generation, the city and the temple will become a blazing fire of God's judgment. It's especially interesting to know what Jesus says about wanting the mountains to fall on us or cover us. Revelation 6, and we'll get there next year, seems to be speaking of the same exact time when this judgment falls. And it says that everyone hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? For now, just notice that this judgment is described as the wrath of the lamb. The lamb is Jesus. This is the coming of Jesus the coming of the Son of Man in judgment that Jesus warns those present at his crucifixion is about to fall. And then the last verse for this morning is verse 28. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. So Jesus references here Israel like a dead animal's corpse. Language that's drawn from Jeremiah 7 where God is warning Judah and Jerusalem what will happen if they persist in their sin. It's one of the passages that Jesus quoted when he inspected the temple and called it a den of robbers. That comes from Jeremiah 7. And in the same passage, God says, the dead bodies of this people will be food for the birds of the air and for the beasts of the earth, and none will frighten them away. And I will silence in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem, the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, for the land shall become a waste. And when he speaks of the vultures gathering, he's referring to the Roman armies along with the other armies that joined them. And the word vultures is actually the specific word for eagles. It's not the generic word for, for vulture or a scavenging bird. It's it's actually an eagle. The translators use vultures because they're more commonly associated with scavenging. But I think Jesus is here hinting at the standards, the, 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 the posts with the, the image on top of the Roman legions. They had eagles on top of them. The very standards that in AD 70 would be marched in and set up in the temple in Jerusalem as it was being destroyed. Well, that's the text. Let me now just tell you a little more of the story of the siege of Jerusalem. Okay? And by the way, this is the image that we've used for the, ser for the series. And that's what you have here is you have the Roman army encamped out here kind of overlooking Jerusalem in its destruction. What brings about this war? 
Well, in the mid-60s, the Jews were really beginning to chafe under Roman rule. They began a significant tax protest, refusing to pay. And the, 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 the man in charge there, King Agrippa, knowing what the Roman response to that would be, begged them not to go to war with Rome. Here's what he said. Certainly no one can imagine that you can enter into a war as by an agreement or that when the Romans have got you under their power, they will use you with moderation. Or will not rather, for an example to other nations, burn your holy city and utterly destroy your whole nation. Well, they didn't listen. The Jewish revolt began in earnest in AD 65. And in the first stage of the Jewish war, Cestius Gallus led the Roman army against Jerusalem. Now, he was not an experienced military leader. He was a governor, and he was leading a Roman legion, and the legion suffered quite a few losses from the Jews, these, these rebels along the way. So as he's coming toward Jerusalem, they're kind of hitting him with guerrilla warfare, and they took out a good number of the, of the Roman legion. Well, they still arrive at the city of Jerusalem in November of AD 66, he surrounds the city of Jerusalem. Now, you got to understand, inside Jerusalem, there are factions of Jews, and some of them want to work with the Romans. They do not want war. They want peace with Rome. They say, let them, let them be in charge. We will obey them. That's better for us than trying to fight against them. The leaders of that group invited Cestius Gallus into the city. For some reason, he hesitated. He didn't come right in, right away. And... Um, the rebelling Jews, the ones who were pro-rebellion inside the city, then killed all of those leaders inside the city, okay? all of the, the Jewish leaders who were wanting peace with Rome that had invited Cestius Gallus in. And then Cestius Gallus retreated away from Jerusalem, and Josephus writes, without any reason in the world. Nobody knew why. And he retreats. Well, I can tell you one reason why. Jesus had warned his people. When you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, it's time to leave. Now, while the armies are surrounding, you can't get out. But as soon as they retreated, now the Christians go, we've seen the sign. It's time to go. And that's what they do. As Cestius Gallus retreats, the Christians leave the city and they head to Pella. Now, the rest of the Jews stay in the city they don't believe what Jesus had said, okay? Let me just show you on a map here. Jerusalem is down here, and the city of Pella is up here, kind of on the other side of the Jordan River. And so that's where they flee, the Christians flee. Well, the next thing is then, the Roman general Vespasian is sent to deal with Jerusalem. For whatever reason, Cestius Gallus didn't get things done. Vespasian is sent. And so in February, of 67 AD, Rome now formally declares war on Judea. The, the Roman legion had actually, according to history, the Roman legion was defeated, the, the legion that Cestius Gallus led, because the rebels took out a number of them on the way in, and as they retreated, they followed them out and, and continued to inflict pretty severe losses. So Rome wasn't going to continue with Cestius Gallus as the leader, so they sent Vespasian. And they formally declare war. 
And it would be exactly three and a half years after that that Rome would finally defeat Jerusalem. But Vespasian comes and he's got 60,000 soldiers with him. And he advances across Judea. He takes various strategic cities as he goes. In the, 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 Josephus makes some notes about this. In Gadara, all the youth were killed. He defeats Jadapada, Japaha, 15,000 were destroyed there, 2,100 were taken captive. Mount Gerizim, another 11,600 were killed. At Terakai, 6,500 were killed. And so this is what he's doing across the countryside as he comes. He comes to Gamala, and I'll just use this as an example because there's some interesting excavations that have happened there. At Gamala, Gamala is um, up here in Jerusalem. Gamala is considered to be the Masada of the Golan Heights. Masada was a desert fortress that was out to the east of Jerusalem. And Gamala was much smaller, but it was kind of a fortress and it had a good wall system around the city and it was up on the heights and it was difficult to, to attack. Well, the Romans attacked and over the course of their battle there, they killed 4,000 and 5,000 of the, the, the men of Gamala died by suicide, it seems, by running off of a cliff. Now, we don't know if they were running and thought they could escape that way and ended up trampling each other or what the case was, but we know that 5,000 of them died that way. There is a breach in the wall, and you can see that there, probably done by a battering ram, and there's three of those breaches in the wall, and history tells us that's how the Romans entered the city. <clears throat> they also... This is a reconstruction, but that's a catapult or a ballista that the Romans would use. And they would use that to fire either like a, a bolt, a catapult bolt, almost like a crossbow bolt, you know, or these stones that were like this kind of a, a small cannonball kind of thing. And uh, at the site of Gamala, they have found a, around 100 catapult bolts and 1,600 arrowheads, and the remains of some of those catapults or ballista, and about 2,000 of these stones all in that area. And so that's evidence of that significant battle of the Romans attacking there. And then here you have cliffs, and at the base of the cliffs, they've discovered the, the bones, the skeletons of you know, those thousands of men who died um, running away that way. And the city of Gamala was never rebuilt. That's just one example of what the Romans kind of did along the way. Another city that they attacked along the way was the city of Gishala. And the, at the city of Gishala, the men of the city all fled to Jerusalem to join the armies there in defending it against Rome. All the women and the, and the children in Gishala were killed, 6,000 of them. One of the men who fled from Gishala was named John Levi, sometimes called John of Gishala. And he becomes important in what happens inside the city of Jerusalem. So what was going on inside of Jerusalem? Well, the zealots in Jerusalem wanted full-on war with Rome. Now, that's one of the factions inside the city. And so they recruited basically a bunch of hooligans, the, 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 the wicked men of Jerusalem, to help them. And they took control of the city as much as they could. So they're fighting with the priests and with others. And they overtake the temple area, and then the tides kind of turn, and they get kind of trapped in the temple area. And so they send for help from a group of men known as the Idumeans. These are the descendants of Esau. They're the Edomites, Herod that was king 
when Jesus was born was an Idumean. And so 20,000 Idumeans come up to Jerusalem during this massive rainstorm and all of the city gates have been closed and barred and some of the zealots come out in this rainstorm and they use axes and break down one of the gates so that these 20,000 Idumeans can come in. And they come in and they start destroying people in the city. And they kill over 20,000 of the inhabitants of Jerusalem. They destroy homes. There's all kinds of, now remember, this is all <clears throat> fighting that's going on inside the city. This is not the Romans doing anything. The Romans are, are outside the city. Just letting Jerusalem self-destruct as all of the, the Jews are turning on each other inside the city. Well, these Idumeans eventually kill a number of the priests, including the high priest Ananus. They free the zealots from their being trapped in the temple area. But eventually, those Idumeans who are in the city are going to turn around and help fight against the Romans. Once the Romans are now attacking, then all of the different factions inside the city stop fighting each other and they turn their attention on the Romans. So that's kind of how this, this conflict unfolds. Now, meanwhile, <clears throat> while this is going on in Jerusalem, across the Mediterranean, in Rome, you have a bit of chaos that ensues because Nero dies in AD 68. And so what follows the death of Nero is what they call the year of four emperors. You have people vying for the throne and they don't last very long. So Galba was emperor for seven months, Otho for three months, Vitellius for eight months. And then the fourth man who takes control is Vespasian, the man who's leading the siege against Jerusalem. So again, they back off of Jerusalem while Vespasian goes back to Rome and he becomes the emperor. And so then he turns around and he sends his son, Titus, to go take up the siege against Jerusalem again. And so um, while that's going on back inside of Jerusalem, we still have these factions fighting. And John Levi, who had left Geshula and fled to Jerusalem, he leads a group of men fighting against um, another group led by a man named Simon Bargiora. So, so John is wanting to revolt against the Romans. He wants to have this battle with the Romans. The priests don't want him to. So the priests call on Simon and, and Simon raises his army. And so he comes in with 20,000 people. And so they, the priests let Simon into the city to fight against John Levi. <clears throat> they burn down the area around the temple. Many innocent people are killed. The, 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 the historians tell us there were so many dead bodies, they couldn't deal with them all. And they're just piled up in various places around the city while this fighting just continues. John Levi, once he starts losing the battle, burns down all of the provisions. So all the storehouses with corn and everything else burns all of that to the ground. That leads to the famine that happens then in the city of Jerusalem. And so those in the city who are opposed to the revolt against Rome were either killed or imprisoned. So you can see how things just over these years get more and more difficult and desperate inside the city. Imagine if you're living in there and you can't leave because there's armies outside and you have death and destruction happening everywhere around you inside. There's famine, there's cannibalism going on. There's all kinds of, it's just, it's horrible. It's awful. It's a terrible time. It is a time of great tribulation. This brings us up to the final siege by Titus. And Titus first gathers his troops at Caesarea, which is outside of Jerusalem. It's a ways away. And he summons additional armies. And so he calls for armies from Italy and from 
Egypt and from Syria and from Greece. And so they all come together to help him. And as he approaches Jerusalem, he encamps in the area of Mount Scopus, which is northeast of the city. So if you're looking at this here, you're looking you know, the top is north here. So from the temple area off to the right, you have that Kidron Valley and the Mount of Olives. So from the Mount of Olives going north, one more hill, one more mountain is Mount Scopus. And so this gives you a view of Jerusalem from Mount Scopus. Again, modern day, and you can see the Dome of the Rock here. And you can see down here is the, the Kidron Valley. But this is the view that Titus would have had. This is where his armies were encamped, overlooking the city. And the siege against Jerusalem began on April 14th, AD 70. This is the time of the Passover, which is interesting because exactly... 40 years after the Passover on which Jesus was crucified, this now takes place. And Jesus had said what? All these things will come upon this generation. The biblical generation is 40 years. And God, in his patience, waited fully one generation before bringing Titus to Jerusalem. Well, Titus levels the area, cuts down all the trees around the city for visibility and to use them for ramps for the siege. John Levi's army, Simon Barjora's army, they both fight against the Romans from different places in the city. But gradually the Romans took the city, took them about 15 days before they take the first wall, another five days before they take the second wall. Listen to how Josephus describes the situation of those who attempted to leave the city. Those who say, it's so bad in here, I would rather risk going out where the Romans are. Okay, so those who leave the city. Josephus says they were first whipped and then tormented with all sorts of tortures before they died and were then crucified before the wall of the city. This miserable procedure <clears throat> made Titus greatly to pity them. While they caught every day 500 Jews, they, some days they caught more. So the soldiers, out of the wrath and hatred they bore the Jews, nailed those they caught, one after one way, another after another, to the crosses by way of jest. When their multitude was so great that room was wanting for the crosses and crosses wanting for the bodies. In other words, they didn't have enough space to put up more crosses, and they didn't have enough crosses for all the bodies of all the Jews who were escaping Jerusalem and running right into the Romans, who were not showing them any mercy. As Jesus had wept over Jerusalem, warning them over what was coming, listen to what he said in Luke 19. Listen to this. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. You see how his words were fulfilled? Some in Jerusalem tried to smuggle their wealth out of the city by swallowing gold coins. <clears throat> but the armies on the outside quickly caught on to what was going on. And the Syrians and the Egyptians particularly caught and dissected people, searching their stomachs and their intestines for the gold. And Josephus tells us, for example, that in one night, 
2,000 people were dissected that way. On July 17th, the daily sacrifice in the temple ceased because every person was needed for the defense of the city. The final deaths that occurred at the, te at the temple altar were the Jews who were killed there by the Romans. Titus killed everyone who resisted with the exception of those whom they sold as slaves or sent to the arenas. About 40,000 non-combatants were allowed to leave. Now compare that to the 1.1 billion that died. The Romans burned houses, they searched the city and they found that many of the homes had piles of bodies in the upper rooms, people who had died in the famines. They killed all of the older people. They kept many of the youths as slaves. The tallest and most beautiful were reserved for Titus's triumph march, his parade coming back into the city of Rome. If you were a victorious general and you win a big battle, you get a parade when you come home. And part of the parade is that you drag the captives in chains along the parade route. So if you were to go to Rome today, just outside the city, you find the Arch of Titus that celebrates this great victory that Titus had. And on the inside of the arch, there are some carvings at the bottom here. Let me just show you one. You can see here, this is them carrying the loot away from Jerusalem. And you'll notice the menorah. That's the candlestick from the temple. And so here you have in Rome to this day, you have this evidence of just exactly what the Romans did specifically even to the Jewish temple in this siege. The healthy who were over age 17 that were not killed were sent to Egypt to work in the mines. Many of the captives were sent to various cities so that they could become entertainment in the arenas. For example, Titus sent 2,500 to the city of Caesarea for his brother Domitian's birthday. And they were killed by the sword or by wild animals in the arena in that birthday celebration. And even just during the time that it took for the Romans to make their decisions about who was going to be sent where, 11,000 of the Jews died of starvation just while those decisions were being made. And here's how Josephus described how bad things were. The multitude of those that therein perished exceeded all the destructions that either men or God ever brought upon the world. Obviously, he's speaking in a little bit of hyperbole there, but you understand what he's saying about how awful this time was. All in all, Josephus records that 97,000 were taken captive and 1.1 million were killed in the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. So when Jesus in Matthew 24 describes the time of the great tribulation, he was predicting exactly what happened in AD 70. And this is his judgment on the Jews who rejected him as Messiah. Now I realize this is not the most pleasant of passages to dwell on, but this does tell us some things that we need to understand about who God is. Let me just give you two things this morning. And the first is this, God is holy and just. He will not tolerate sin and rebellion forever. Eventually at the right time, he will judge those who rebel against him. 
This is not only true of the Jews. This is true of any society that rejects God's word, God's law. Romans 1 gives a description of a society that goes downhill like this. And throughout the description, three times it says, God gave them up. God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. Joel Beakey writes, and listen to how this applies to Jerusalem, but also to the society that we live in today. Okay. He says, this judgment comes through God's acts in history, such as giving sinners over to corrupting desires and a worthless mindset as a judgment for rejecting him. God's providential abandoning of a society to degradation and self-destruction is a public revelation of his wrath. Let me read that sentence again. God's providential abandoning of a society to degradation and self-destruction is a public revelation of his wrath. Apply that to our society today. The various things that have led to the disintegration of our own society are God's judgment on us because we have rejected God and his law. One other thing, though, that we learn about God's character in this passage is that God is merciful. And while the story of what happens here is an example of the drastic consequences of sin and rebellion, there are two ways that you see God's mercy at work inside this judgment. First, God is merciful to his people. He warned them and he told them how to escape this judgment. So the Christians listened to the warning and they fled Jerusalem to Pella. They weren't in Jerusalem when this judgment fell because God in his mercy gave them a way to escape. And second, God was patient with the Jews. Jesus told them judgment would fall on this generation, but God gave them the full 40 years, a biblical generation, giving them every last moment in which to repent. They refused, but it still demonstrates God's patience and mercy. Richard Sibbs said that there is not more light in the sun, there is not more water in the sea, than there is mercy in the Father of mercies. And these are familiar verses, but Lamentations 3, 22 and 23 says, The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Putting together these two ideas of God's justice and his mercy. Once God's law shows us our sin and our guilt and the penalty that we deserve, this eternal death, then we are prepared to flee John Calvin said, to God's mercy alone as the only haven of safety. God's justice and his mercy meet at the cross in Jesus. It is his judgment on sin, but it is his mercy for his people, for all of those who have faith. 
And his justice and mercy of God are perfectly embodied in Jesus. He upheld the holiness of God. He warned of the judgment that he was about to bring on that generation. But he offered mercy and provided a way of escape for his people. And Jesus is worthy of our worship for his justice and for his mercy. Let's pray. Lord, as we think of these verses and, and this great tribulation that Jesus was prophesying and that history tells us fell on Jerusalem and Judea, we want to see beyond just the horrific nature of the events to what it tells us about you. And so we recognize that it displays your holiness and your justice. You won't tolerate sin forever. May we, as your people, truly believe that. May we repent of our sins and turn away from them and follow you wholeheartedly. And we pray for those around us who are not believers, that they would to turn from their sin, that by the power of your spirit, you would give them new life, new eyes to see the truth so that your justice would not need to fall on them. But we also see your mercy and we thank you for your mercy that comes to us in Christ. We thank you that he has taken the penalty, the punishment that we deserve on himself we can stand now dressed in the righteousness of Christ because of your mercy that you have shown to us. And we pray this this morning in the name of Jesus.